Chapter 3. Recognizing and owning God's gifts to you and rejecting what is not. Now, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had burned. The other woman said, No, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, No, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king, and the king said, This one says, My son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, No, your son is dead and my son is alive. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling, Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. That was 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. Owning God's gift to you, not my own. Those words got my attention as a young man pronounced them as he led prayers at one of our intercessory meetings. The contest was a story of the two women who approached King Solomon to help determine whose baby was the living one. I felt drawn to the discourse, and the more I studied, the more I saw the problem was an identity issue. The object was a baby, and transposed to our world can be a vision, a destiny, a purpose, and so on. God blessed both women with gifts to nurture. They received blessings that should define, or at the very least, affect their future. They each recognized and owned their gifts. The journey had been a while, nine months, many hours spent nurturing the dream. Imagine the joy and anticipation of holding the manifestation of God's promise and grace. The emotions could range from pure joy to anxiety with the mothers through the gestation period, wondering what the future held for their babies. They could only hope and pray that all would be well. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The story is about two women who approached King Solomon with a dispute. Each woman had a child, and while looking after their treasure, life happened and one of the babies died. 
Both women slept with their babies close to their bosoms. But under the cover of the night, the living child was exchanged for the dead one. How could that happen? How can anyone be so careless? The judging heart will say. Truth? It happens to the best of us. The Bible was careful to include the detail that both women slept. Night came for the two women in our story, and one rested on our heritage. The other was careful not to trample on the tender baby, but not enough to notice an exchange of identities. The strange things that occur under the cover of the night. A dispute ensued and each laid claim on the living child so much that they needed a higher power and authority to help them resolve the matter. Wait, did they not know the details of their assignment? How is it? that a mother cannot distinguish her baby from another. They approached the king, Solomon, who a while before had asked God for wisdom to rule the people right in the council of God. This dispute is the test needed to see if God granted his request. The women continued their arguments before the king. The woman with the dead child did not mind killing the living one. At least that would ensure they were both even. On the contrary, the actual owner of the living child pleaded that the baby's life be spared and given to the wrong woman. That way, the baby will get a chance at life and hopefully would in time seek his real identity. King Solomon displayed uncommon wisdom in judging the dispute, a grace God endowed him with just before the women showed up. He discerned that no one who, in truth, knew their gift and purpose, would watch it die. Hope by some providence they get a second chance and a say as to the future of their dream and thereafter pronounce a death sentence on it. Unlikely, he saw through the wickedness and the devious effort at exchanging destinies. King Solomon deployed God's wisdom and authority and judged that the pro-life woman rightfully owned the baby. What does this story have to do with our identity in Christ? A whole lot. We're not only made in God's likeness and image, we were given the necessary tools to fulfill our destinies in Christ. The mandate we received at Eden was to reproduce after our kind, just as Adam's job was to tend the garden over which he was given oversight. Both women's duty was to care for their babies and ensure the same bore the identity of God. Sometimes in life, we find situations like the two women before King Solomon, where someone may have become careless with who they are and what they have been blessed with. In trying to save face, they may succumb to the crap nature of doing things. If I can't have it, neither should anyone else. This thinking will not admit wrong, but rather be content with everyone struggling at the low level instead of striving to go higher in God and, dis- and discover his unending possibilities. We learn some lessons from the two women. Know who and whose you are. Be familiar with God's giftings to you. Nurture your gift. Seek to protect your gift. Recognize the devil when he is at work. Never settle for death when life is a possibility. When the matter is beyond you, go to the king. And in our case, take your issues to God, the righteous judge, who sees deep into our hearts 
motives and actions. Even when the judgment does not go in your favor, stay with God, the rewriter of history, the God of second chances. He will give you a new identity. No need to struggle over someone else's identity. God can give you another if you have trampled on the one he gave you. As a king, understand that you cannot rule without wisdom and discernment. When confronted, be bold to declare God's counsel. Trust the workings of the Spirit of God operating on your inside. Change the identity. There's another scenario in the Bible that talks about knowing our identity. The story is one brief stop in the middle of a long list of names and their genealogies. It is the story of Jabez. Before his name came up, we had to be acquainted with all the characters whose claim to fame was who they said. But when he came to Jabez, we got to know his name, what identity God had for, in mind for him. By design, he was a man of honor who distinguished himself from his brothers. Still, his mama thought he needed to wear the identity of sorrow because the circumstances of his birth were less than desired. The Bible records that Jabez, though accomplished, went through life for a bit, bearing the wrong label. He did not ask to be born and certainly did not order the painful period his mother had to endure. But she was content to allow him face life bearing child of sorrow in the era where names were predictions of the person's future. Imagine going through life with the title Child of Sorrow. In an, it's an invitation for everyone you meet to either be intrigued or rebuffed by the peculiarity of your identity. No matter the pain or dysfunction that characterized Jabez's coming to life, he did not deserve that label. First Chronicles chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you will bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm, so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Seeing that Bible is a book of redemption, the story got a twist. At some point, the man Jabez determined he will no longer go through life bearing sorrow, and he aligned himself with God's original identity for him. Jabez was an honorable man. He took the matter to God and made a multidimensional petition. Number one, he cried to the God of Israel, the God of his fathers. Number two, he asked for a blessing, knowing that his power trumps any negative effect the name Child of Sorrow could embody. Number three, he asked for an enlargement of territory. There is a dimension a man can have that permanently puts any wrong label to rest. And number four, he prayed that the hand of the Lord will be upon him. Jabez asked to be led by God. When God directs your life, you have nothing to fear. You can be sure that life will be colorful. Number five, he pleaded to be kept from harm so that he will be free from pain. One can imagine the emotional and physical trauma of going through life bearing the wrong identity. The comforting thing about the essence and prayer of Jabez is that we do not have to accept what God did not ordain in our lives. 
If you do not like your identity, you can ask God for a change, especially when you know his will. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. The Bible recalls that God granted Jabez's request. The good news is, you too can get your prayers answered. You do not have to go through life causing or bearing pain. It is the reason Jesus came. He already took away all that will make us ill-equipped to live fulfilling lives. You don't have to follow the norm. Yet another Bible record teaches us some lessons about maintaining God's counsel over our lives. John's birth was announced by an angel, the one who stood in the presence of God. His pedigree was excellent. Parents from the priestly lineage, father from the line of Abijah, and the mother from Aaron, Moses' right-hand man. It does not get any better than that. The Bible tells us that they were righteous, old, but barren. Wait, did the Bible not have promises concerning the ones serving God? What happened to the promise or mandate of fruitfulness? Did their service or righteousness count for anything? Not so. In this instance, God had an agenda. Exodus chapter 23 verses 25 and 26. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take sickness away from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. There are many angles to the story of the birth of John the Baptist. But for this discourse, we shall concern ourselves with the day he was named. The father Zacharias' encounter with the angel left him dumb. This account is found in Luke chapter 1 verses 5 to 23. Elizabeth, his mother, had to hide herself for some part of the pregnancy. Luke chapter 1 verse 24. Understandably, she was old and tongues were sure to work. Plus, such special dispensations could not have been treated like other pregnancies. She had the baby and Zach was still dumb until the child's naming ceremony. Let us take a front row seat as we observe the drama. The birth of Elizabeth and Zachariah's baby was the miracle of the age of two older adults getting pregnant. Carrying baby to full-term and eventual delivery, no one should miss that ceremony. Friends and relatives gathered. It was a thing of joy after all. Everyone seated and the event began in earnest. Then came the time for the naming. The elders and relatives assumed the baby had to be called Junior. Zach. It was the norm. The lineage was good. What is not to like about continuing the tradition? Except that in that case, God had his agenda and made it known from the get-go. It was the unbelief in the father's response that necessitated his dumbness. We can, however, assume that he found a way of letting his wife know God's heart. As Elizabeth made it clear, the tradition of the fathers had no room in the child's destiny. He was a man on a mission never heard of in Israel. And we can conclude the ceremony was stalled until the father could clear the air. He asked for a tablet and wrote the name as commanded by the angel. When it was time for Elizabeth to have a baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, 
and they shared our joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name his child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. That was Luke chapter 1 verses 57 to 66. What is our takeaway from this story? Number one, God determines our identity. Number two, tradition must bow when the will of God is known. And number three, God has the reins of our lives. True, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous but God still let them wait till old age to have a baby because there was a higher mandate on their lives. And number four, John came with a unique mission and identity. As parents, we must know God's heart on each child. It is the only way we can raise them right. Chapter four, the importance of belonging to a tribe. I had only a few months left in my final year in college back in the mid-80s. It bothered me that I was about to graduate and could not say I knew my roots. Although my parents told us many stories and did their best to give me and my siblings a great sense of identity, I wanted more. I had questions that being in my hometown with the locals would settle. At the time, my parents were not exposed to me visiting without them. But I was already an adult and had a sense of adventure. What was there to fear? I only desired to visit my people, get to know them and understand their ways, maybe even garner some tales my parents missed. My chance came when my first cousin had to visit his father-in-law in our hometown, and he let me tag along. He knew about my longing to visit before I graduated college and did not see why my parents were not so disposed. I jumped at the opportunity. The ensuing events will remain with me forever. My hunger and thirst for that part of my identity were switched as my curiosity was satisfied. We stayed at my cousin's family house. Since I did not know anybody, my agenda was subsumed in his. Before that time, I always wondered who I looked like. My parents were dark-skinned and I fair. I could also not categorically say I looked like either of them. Out of six children, my sister and I came out fair-skinned. The rest took our parents' skin tone. Plus, I did not think I looked like either of my parents or anyone I knew. My cousin and I visited with different family members, mainly from his side. After a long day, we returned to base. The following day, there was a loud knock on the door. On getting to the door, some men and women had come from my father's family house, asking to see me, their daughter. It sounded odd, but my question found their rest in interfacing with them. One woman left me in no doubt whether I belonged in their family. We had too many similar features. I finally found where I belonged. I was not picked on the streets. I found my roots, my bearing. Glory to God. My experience settled me in ways I do not have adequate words for. I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that I belonged somewhere and was a welcome part of my clan. 
I do not doubt that everyone's story may not play out as straightforward as mine did. After all, it was not as if I was destitute or alone. In every culture, one would find that the search is the same. And it does not matter how successful or otherwise the person is. I once was a part of a dear friend's search for his dad. Beyond his name and the circumstance of his birth, Kenny knew nothing more about the man who served him, not to mention his family members. Kenny was a successful surgeon who was very well known in his profession, but boy burden. He needed first to know who his real dad was and why he wanted nothing to do with him. He did not want more from his dad save an acknowledgement and maybe an apology for missing out when it mattered most. The quest drove him to achieve incredible feats in life. If he did enough, the father would come looking for him. Time would collapse and everyone would live happily ever after. It was not so to be. Kenny's dad knew he had served a child with his college sweetheart and had kept the secret away from his picture-perfect family. He missed his boy and wondered what he looked like and if life treated him fairly. But he never let himself drift too far lest a nicely buried treasure be discovered. It would have been a perfect plan except that no one imagined that life would had his own agenda. Kenny's dad took ill and needed surgery and to save his life he had to be flown out of his city. And you guessed it, Kenny was the only available surgeon. Kenny looked at the case notes, took in all the records and had the patient prepared for surgery. It was all in Kenny's line of duty until the patient got wheeled into the theater. Upon sighting the older man and looking at Kenny, everyone in the room knew there was more than medicine coming into play. His dad was in a battle for his life and Kenny, by the profession's ethics, could not handle the situation. The emotions ran deep. He wanted to meet his father, but not like this. He had questions, but the man was dying and needed to be saved. Thankfully, the surgery could be postponed until they found another surgeon. It became a case of keeping him alive. He needs to answer my questions. After weeks in the hospital, Kenny's dad made it out, and upon sighting his son, he knew that the secret he harbored had nowhere else to hide. He had to face his fears. His firstborn son was standing in front of him and waiting for answers. He braced himself and told his side of the story. Long story short, he was sorry and should not have abandoned his son. Kenny found the answer to his quest but was still thirsty. But he would have to do that he could finally put a face to who brought him to life. Why is it so important that we know and relate to our source? It is the order and the will of God that we belong somewhere. Family, ethnicity, race, nationality, and so on. Kenny is one of many who spent their fortune searching for their ancestry. All the DNA testing, history tracing, and all is because it matters. I've watched accomplished men and women express their deepest yearnings to find their ancestry, and in all cases, the reason is to have a sense of belonging, somewhere they can call home and feel safe. The void, and the ills caused by lack of identity have necessitated the establishment of a multi-billion dollar industry of psychology, psychotherapy, psychiatry, and its like. Looking through the Bible, we see on almost every page how pivotal the subject of identity and the sense of belonging is, 
It is the reason people were named and numbered. Keeping records is essential to put things in their prosper perspective. And we see a fascinating account of the returnees from exile to Israel, recorded in the first two and seventh chapters of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, respectively. The Bible carefully lists the people by name and number. The accounts teach us about folk, the families they belonged to, what they were looking for, and their God-given assignments. My friend, knowing who you are and where you belong will make you reject what is not yours. It would help you to identify impostors around you. Names are essential. They are means of identification. In the Jewish culture, when one has no name, it means that he is not worthy of one. We can conclude that at the end of all searches, we would arrive at God through the Lord Jesus and that, for any searching soul, is enough. To know that God is our source and that we derive our identity through and in Him. Whilst we readily accent that not all searches end happily ever after, we can safely say that disclosures are made and in cases where more questions arise, New vistas are open. Someone may ask, so what if I find answers to my quest and I still feel inadequate? Or my experience created so much damage that knowing my father or mother or even my ancestry heightened the negative effect? What about the wounds, the losses? How do I continue my life and still have a fulfilling outing? We will look closely at some of the issues as we go along in this book.